Okay, um, welcome here at the Tide and Tide Bible Chapel. It's Lord's Day. <coughs> um, thank you for those you've been praying for me. I always like to preach with some prayer support. Always like that. Um, and today's um, <coughs> message I've entitled uh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of Glory. Oh, I can see it. That's good. Um, Revelation 5, verses 8 to 14. Um, <coughs> before we tackle today's, let me try this now. Yeah, okay. Uh, before we tackle today's uh, passage, it'd be helpful to briefly review the big picture, the overall view of Revelation. Um, it's much too easy to get lost in all the details um, and miss the big picture, what God is revealing to us. <clears throat> um, as Warren Wiersbe succinctly put it, the overriding theme of the book of Revelation is the return of Jesus Christ, uh, you know, to the earth that is, to defeat all evil and establish his reign. Um, another part of the big picture is, is to um, look at the outline of Revelation. Um, and... Um, the outline of the outline is in Revelation 1.19. Um, write, therefore, what you have seen. That's the vision of a glorified Christ in chapter 1. What is now Christ's letters to the seven churches and um, what will take place later or hereafter. That's chapters 4 through 22. Um, okay. Um, so um, in chapters four and five, which we'll, we'll be finishing out today, um, there's a vision of heaven, and uh, that sets the stage for chapters six through 19, and for the rest of Revelation as well. Uh, chapter six to 19, this section refers to the seven-year period known as the tribulation or the great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. Warren Wiersbe describes the seven-year period. He says, according to Daniel 9, Seven years are assigned to Israel in God's prophetic calendar, beginning with the signing of an agreement with the world dictator, the Antichrist, and ending with Christ's return to earth to judge, all, to judge evil and establish his kingdom. What is significant about the middle of the tribulation? That's when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel. His true colors start showing, and he becomes their prosecutor instead of their protector, Daniel 9, 27. And then you get the last part of um, section of Revelation, chapters 20 to 22. In chapters 20, we see the millennium and the great white throne judgment. In chapters 21 and 22, the establishment of the eternal kingdom. So where's the rapture of the church in all this? Um, I believe the rapture occurs before the tribulation and it's the next big event on God's prophetic calendar. note here, Tide and Drive Bible Chapel, we are a Plymouth Brethren Assembly. I hold to the traditional uh, view of the end times espoused by the brethren, pre-trib and pre-mill, um, to use the lingo. In other words, the rapture of the church will occur before the tribulation, prior to, and uh, we won't go through it. And the second coming of Christ will occur before the millennium. The millennium will be a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on the 
earth, followed by the resurrection and the judgment of the unsaved, and then the eternal kingdom. I think this is the correct view, and I hold to it unapologetically. However, many, god many godly and serious men uh, connect the dots of the end time differently. Okay? Our fellowship as Christians um, does not and should not depend on whether we agree on the details or even the broad outlines of how the end times unfold. This is because the study of prophecy is an extremely complex and often confusing subject. And we see through a glass darkly, as Paul says. Um, every, every end time point of view has its difficulties. Um, and it's not, it's not hard to poke holes in any of them. Um, I think that humility in this matter goes a long ways. Even though eschatology is an important subject or doctrine, it's not one of the fundamental doctrines of the faith, such as salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, or the deity of Jesus Christ, or the inerrancy of scripture. Um, so um, it's not, you know, heaven knows we have enough division without, you know, without creating more. Now, I always consult um, commentaries um, when I, preach. Uh, the reason is is that um, I look at it as iron sharpening iron. Um, uh, I, I consult men who are godly and, and learned uh, and um, you know they point out things I never would have thought of. I, I feel like a dwarf on the shoulders of giants and, and so these are you know these are these are good people. So my resources um, are this um, Warren Wearsby's book in Revelation. He is not a brethren, but, he in, but um, his end times views uh, dovetail exactly with the brethren view. Uh, the next one is William MacDonald. He was uh, the humble, godly expositor from the brethren tradition. Um, he has this 2,500 page commentary in the entire Bible called the Believer's Bible Commentary. Uh, it's excellent. I love it. In fact, I'm using part of it today. It's just, this is just it's great stuff. Um, and it's been highly recommended by people like John MacArthur and Warren Wiersbe. Um, and then the final one is um, Daniel Aiken. Um, he, um, he's a little different. He and two other guys um, started this series called the Christ-Centered Exposition Series. Um, and um, says here, this series affirms that the Bible is a Christ-centered book containing a unified story of redemptive history of which Jesus is the hero. We purpose to exalt Jesus from every book of the Bible, which I like. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, Daniel Aiken is one of these. Um, and, and the book he's written that I've borrowed from is Exalting Jesus in Revelation. Um, and he... Um, he is not, um, he's certainly um, not, um, I'm trying to think of the word, he's certainly not uh, a covenant theologian. Uh, he doesn't follow D.A. Carson, who's, who's, who's amillennial. Um, neither is he um, brethren either, but he's a lot closer to the brethren position than he is to the, to the, to the covenant theology position. So today we're completing our study of uh, Revelation 4 and 5. 
Um, it presents us with a vision of heaven in two parts. Chapter 4, the spotlight is on God the Father seated on his throne. Um, to quote Achan, he is um, praised as the king of creation, who is eternal, holy, and glorious, a God who alone is worthy of praise and worship. Um, and then in chapter 5, the spotlight shifts to God the Son, who is the lion of, of the tribe of Judah, and at the same time is a resurrected lamb who had been slain. A word about symbols in the book of Revelation. Some of the things we read about in Revelation um, are not what you'd actually see if you were there, what they're describing, um, but they're symbols that are more evocative and more eloquent than just a mere verbal description. For example, you could call the verbal description Antichrist, the sneaky, um, sneaky worldwide dictator, treacherous kind of guy. Okay, you can, you can, you can you know, describe him on and on, but in Revelation 13, he's called the beast, beast, okay? That's more colorful, that's more evocative, and fits in better with the way our right brain hemispheres tend to, tend to operate. So in Revelation 5, and actually the rest of the Revelation, there's a number of symbols that in a way speak a lot more eloquently and are packed with more meaning than a simple verbal description. So let's do, view a, do a brief review of verses 1 to 8 in chapter 5 because the whole chapter is one narrative story. Um, I don't want to re-preach re uh, Mike Hawkins' masterful sermon from last week, but simply re to review these uh, verses so we're aware of the full context. So, and I'm borrowing some, borrowing some headings from, um, from uh, Daniel Akins. They'll have been quotes here. Um, so, yeah, Jesus Christ is, the, he says that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history, verses one to eight, one to five, and verses one to five tell us why he is the Lord of history. And uh, the first reason is because of God's plan, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The scroll is mentioned seven times in this chapter, so clearly it's very important. So what is the scroll? Different answers have been given. Christ titled thee to the earth and everything else promised by the Father because of his sacrifice on the cross. William MacDonald a record of the judgments that must fall on the earth before the Lord Jesus can set up his kingdom. Yep. And then Daniel Aiken, the remainder of the book of Revelation, chapter 6 to 22, i.e., uh, God's plan for the rest of history, including judgment, the great white throne judgment, salvation, and restoration in new heavens and new earth. When we say plan, it doesn't just mean a prediction of the future, but a plan or a, blu a blueprint that will carry be carried out exactly as God has ordained it. Everything in the scroll was written and authored by God the Father. Notice he isn't standing there idly. He's expecting someone to take the scroll from him, but not just anyone. The next verses tell us the extraordinary qualification needed for that person. So verses 2 to 4 um, tell us of heaven's problem, and I put problem in quotes. Um, it's a, a, a mighty angel with a mega voice says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So the scroll opener has to be worthy of that honor. Okay? So the, a universal search is made in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and absolutely nobody is found worthy. Um, 
And so John ends up weeping greatly because of this bad news. Since nobody is worthy, heaven has a, quote, problem. Well, he is Lord of history because of his power, verse 5. Okay? One of the elders tells John, stop weeping, you know, because someone has been found worthy to open the scroll. You know? Only one being in the entire universe has been found worthy, and he's been found. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion is a symbol of power and strength, of dignity, and of courage. And Jesus embodies those qualities exactly. Um, this lion has triumphed. The Greek word, you may have heard this word before, is Nike, uh, which means to conquer, to triumph, to overcome. I think there's a athletic shoe company that's latched onto that, and they probably um, they have probably what's the word trademarked it. Uh, but the real trademark, the heavenly trademark, is far greater. Okay, this lion, he has conquered, he has overcome, he has triumphed. Okay, um, this this lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the Lord of history because of his triumphant power. And then now, uh, okay. Are we changing? No. Okay. Uh, Jesus Christ is Lord of victory. Do we have that? Oh, it's up there. I can't, I can't read very well. Okay. He's the Lord of victory. And verses 6 and 7 tell us why he's the Lord of victory here. Um, it says, because he was the slain or the slaughtered lamb. The word for slain indicates a violent death. And I like the term slaughtered because used in some translations because it's fresher and more vivid. We use the word slain enough that it's lost all its rough edges. Also, the Greek word for lamb okay, refers to a little pet lamb. Uh, speaks of an animal that's loved and gentle and completely innocent. So this picture of the slaughtered lamb who was gentle and innocent speaks of the redeeming sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the one who took our place and bore, and bore our sins. John the Baptist exclaimed, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And in verse six, he's the Lord of victory because he is standing, okay? Um, dead people don't stand, so he's alive, okay? This speaks of his resurrection. There'd be no victory if he was resurrected. Find, if you could find the body of Christ in some grave in Palestine, it'd all be over for us. But he, but he is alive. Um, and he is, verse 6, he is strong. Horns represent strength in the scripture, and seven horns signify perfect strength, so he is omnipotent. Um, also, eyes represent knowledge and wisdom. And seven eyes represent perfect wisdom and perfect knowledge. So he's all-knowing, he's omniscient. And the seven eyes also represent the sevenfold spirit of a God sent out into all the world. So that indicates his omnipresence. Daniel Aiken comments, this description is nothing less than a full affirmation of the Lamb's deity. For only God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. So in, what are the li in light of what the Lamb has done, his work of atonement, and who he is, God, he can do in verse 7 what no one else in all of creation can do. So verse 7 
as the has the the final proof of his victory he the lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat in the throne that's the father this is the final proof of his of his victory of his worthiness no one else could do this no one else would even try this no one else would even dare to do this remember in Nathan Hart's uh, sermon a couple weeks ago uh, he said God the Father and his throne is also terrifying well the victorious lamb wasn't he wasn't terrified because he was supremely worthy so what happens next now and the answer comes in verses 8 to 14 which is 8 which is today's text so I want to read so I want us to let us stand for the reading of God's word okay and I'm going to read this slowly I have the word slowly because Brian will will appreciate that um, yes <laughs> and so I'm going to read them out loud here and when he had taken it the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people and they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain <clears throat> to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. You may be seated. Um, so Jesus Christ, the Lamb of Glory, this is verses 8 to 14. Read that first verse again. And when he had taken it, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So when the lamb takes, takes the uh, scroll, there's this glorious eruption of worship and praise and adoration directed towards the lamb. The, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall down and worship before the lamb. Or as one translation puts it, they threw themselves to the ground before the lamb. Uh, you know, that's, um, if you're in the Middle East, particularly in ancient times, um, if you met someone like a king or a general or someone of, of note, uh, you would throw yourself to the ground. Typically, you'd, you'd kneel, or you might even uh, be prostrate in the ground, depending who it was. It was just a, a posture of submission and a recognition of authority. Now, these elders, each of them have harps, and which are instruments of praise. They were also holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You know, incense has this pleasant, fragrant, pleasing aroma um, and so the prayers of the saints are like incense a fragrant and pleasing aroma that rises before the throne of God heartfelt prayers from, from 
pure hearts are pleasing to him. They're valued by God. Uh, our prayers matter to God. He enjoys them. He doesn't toss them in, into the wastebasket. Um, and also, I like to say, too, I think God values the prayers of children just as much as those of adults, sometimes even more because they're more sincere. Um, and then uh, verses 9 to 14 talk about the three uh, songs of high praise to the Lamb, the song of redemption, uh, the song of high praise by the angels, and the song of high praise by all creation. So the song of redemption. Am I going too far? Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So this, this song is sung by the living creatures and the 24 elders. Now there are four reasons given why the lamb was worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. One is, it says, because you were slain or slaughtered. See, Jesus Christ willingly let himself be slain on the cross to pay for our sins. He was not a helpless victim, but he willingly laid his life down and took it back up again, as it said in John uh, 10, verses 17 to 18. If he had been unwilling or forced to do it, he wouldn't have been worthy, but he was definitely willing. Um, and so he is worthy of all the praise. Secondly, with your blood, you purchased, that it, or you redeemed, or, or, you, or you ransomed people. Warren Wearsby told about a denomination that removed all songs about the blood of Christ from its official hymn book. You know, that hymn book would be pretty worthless in heaven, wouldn't it? One, one commentator noted he says, the redeeming blood of the Lamb is no embarrassment in heaven. <laughs> Excuse me. Not only are they not ashamed to talk about it, they love to sing about it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. And this is a gospel song that talks about the redeeming blood of Christ. Um, and um, the third reason, you purchase people from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is a missionary song that praises the Lamb for redeeming the people from everywhere, from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every you know, pe people and nation. The message of redemption has penetrated the entire world with all the barriers have been broken down by the blood of the Lamb. God's plan for the message of the gospel to is to spread throughout the whole world. It was revealed in Acts 1.8. Christ said to his disciples, you will be witnesses in, uh, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So they were to be missionaries spreading the good news. Every single believer here today has been saved because there have been faithful witnesses, missionaries, if you will, who have shared, <coughs> excuse me, who have shared the wonderful news of the gospel to peoples and nations and tribes, often at great cost to themselves, often being martyred. We are privileged in our chapel to support missionaries in different parts of the globe, sharing the good news of redemption to a, a lost and dying world. For example, Leon and Linda Crawford, who 
were here today, ministering in Ensenada, Mexico. Luke and Gina Johnson in Tanzania. Jerry and Sarah Maddox in Cyprus in the Middle East. Andy and Rachel Meinzer in Sri Lanka. Excuse me, sharing the good news with children. Um, and you know, that reminds me, the gospel isn't just for adults, it's for kids. What's that song, Jesus loves the little children? All the children of the world, every color, every race, all are covered by his grace. Jesus loves the little children. And then there's Peter. I think uh, 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 Tim talked about this this morning. He's a native, in, native elder in Tanzania who works with Luke Johnson. And God has given him a burden for reaching the nomadic Wataturo tribe up in the north of, of Tanzania. This is exciting. Peter is helping fulfill uh, God's plan to have people from every tribe, language, and nation in heaven, <coughs> excuse me, persons who are persecuted, per, I mean, excuse me, persons who are purchased for God with the blood of the lamb. This is exciting. This is great. Um, you know, we at uh, TDBC have decided we want to partner with Peter uh, by providing some financial support. And so we're in the process of working with Peter to help fund a clean water well which is a very important practical need in that part of the world. And you know, and, and I think that the, the, the tribe is very excited. They're, they're happy about this. And so it's a privilege to be involved in that. Um, so even as we talk, uh, this is happening. And number four, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth, verse 10. This hymn is a prophetic hymn, prophesying that we will reign on the earth with Christ in the millennial kingdom. He is the king of kings, high king and we will be royalty under his authority serving and assisting him and governing him uh, governing uh, the earth and as priests uh, we will do priestly services for him uh, our high priest as it says in second peter 2 5 a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to god through jesus christ Now, <clears throat> that's the second, <clears throat> there's a song of high praise by the angels. This is the second song. <clears throat> the chorus, chorus widens as angels now join in this glorious worship. They're not content to sit in the sidelines any longer. They just feel totally compelled to join in. They've got to join in. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. <clears> they encircled the throne, <clears throat> excuse me, and the living creatures and the elders. This is a choir numbering in the millions, possibly even billions, you know. Um, it's a gigantic uh, uh, a choir that surrounds the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And here's the second song. Um, in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and praise. You know, neither humans nor uh, angels can actually bestow on him those four, first four. I've highlighted them up there uh, because um, he already has them because he's God and or because the, fower, the Father has bestowed them on him. For example, in Matthew 28, Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. 
So if we, if we could give him more power, then he didn't have all power, did he? Um, all we can do, as Daniel Aiken suggests, is that we can acknowledge that he has these in their fullness and perfection. But we can certainly and eagerly and wholeheartedly give him the honor and the glory and blessing he fully deserves. It's a huge privilege to do this. Warren Wiersbe has an interesting comment on this. He says, when he was on earth, people did not ascribe these things to him, for many of the things he, de he deliberately laid aside in his, in his humiliation. He was born in weakness and died in weakness, but he is the recipient of all power. He became the poorest of the poor, and yet he owns all the riches of heaven and earth. Men laughed at him and called him a fool, yet he is the very wisdom of God. He shared in the weaknesses of humanity, yet as he hungered, thirsted, and became uh, weary, today in glory he possesses all strength. On earth he experienced humiliation and shame as sinners ridiculed and reviled him. They laughed at his kingship and attired him in a mock robe, crown and scepter. But all that has changed now. He has received all honor and glory blessing or praise, he became a curse for us on the cross so that we can never be under the curse of the broken law. He is worthy of all praise. William MacDonald um, has an interesting perspective on this, and, and uh, I got that from his commentary, and I hadn't thought about it before. He says that the angel's tribute um, in this passage is one that believers will sing throughout eternity. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive and I look at this as an application section. Um, so, <clears throat> to receive power over my life, okay? as the hymn said, king of my life, I crown thee now. Do we recognize him as our king? The one who has the right to rule over every area of our lives? It's right and fitting for us to surrender our lives to him because he created us and he has redeemed us. Riches, all my silver, and my gold. We can and should surrender all, um, lost my spot, all of our worldly wealth to him to be used for his kingdom. Is he the Lord of our pocketbooks? In our financial dealings, do we put him first? For example, when our paycheck comes in, um, do we make out our tithe and offering checks right there, just off the top of it, or do we wait? and say, oh, well, I think I have some money left over. I'll, I'll, do you know? Yeah, see, that would be wrong. Uh, the Lord, he should be the Lord of our pocketbooks. Wisdom, the finest of my intellectual powers in service to the Lamb. When we, when we prepare our Sunday school, uh, Sunday school lessons, sermons, anything else having to do with the church that demands our intellectual powers, we need to do it to the best of our ability, not to show off or win praise, but to do it for his service and his glory. Strength my physical strength for his service. The great command, commandment tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So we serve the, Lord, the lamb with all our strength. Why? Because it's commanded. Two, because he's worthy of it. And three, because our hearts are overflowing with the love that comes from having been forgiven. Honor, a single pure desire to magnify him in all my ways. This means to give him the recognition, the great respect, the high honor he deserves. If the president were to visit my home my, and my wife's home, I think I'd wanna have everything the very best. I'd wanna have the house cleaned um, to my wife's specifications, not mine. 
um, and get out the finest of China, um, and given my track record with val valuable things um, that, um, get, that can get broken, I think she'd want to give me a task in another part of the house and just do it herself. Um, and uh, serve them the very best meal, you know, not yesterday's leftovers. Uh, only the very best of everything. Well, how much more should we treat the lamb with the highest honor, the greatest respect he deserves because of who he is? Another facet of honoring, you know, when star athletes are inducted into the Hall of Fame, like the Basketball Hall or the Football or the ba Baseball Hall of Fame, the induction ceremony will it'll list, it'll highlight, it'll recognize their great accomplishments showing why they are worthy of such an honor. Well, in Heaven's Hall of Fame, Jesus is totally unique, immeasurably greater than anyone else and, and everybody else. Um, I could say a lot more about this, but we, you know, but, but we don't have time. Glory, my entire life devoted to glorifying him. Psalm 34.3 says, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Synonyms for glorify include exalt, magnify, revere, praise, honor, and exaggerate. I like the word exaggerate. You know why? Because if you think about it, it's impossible to exaggerate God's attributes. You know, you can't do it. You can't exaggerate his power, his holiness, his love, his wisdom. And by the way, Jesus' attributes are identical to God's because he is God, isn't he? You can't exaggerate the power of Jesus. Um, the one, quote, by whom all things were created, Colossians 1.16, the one who spoke the worlds into existence. You can't exaggerate God's holiness. You have these living creatures that day and night say, holy, holy, holy. Um, you can't exaggerate his wisdom. You can't exa exaggerate God's love. Not only did God love us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us that we might not perish but have eternal life, John 2, 16. But um, First John tells us that God is love, okay? Not only does he have love, does he exhibit it, but he is love. That's part of his character, part of who he is. Um, yeah, it's, it's impossible to exaggerate his love. I like the words of that old hymn, and I'll do just, just do part, just a very short bit of it, which is, I think I better not. <laughs> well, I'll do it. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the sky, sky as a parchment made? Uh, I'll skip it. I'll skip it. Sorry. Um, anyway, yeah, there's no way of exaggerating God's love. You know, I like to think of glorifying God as bragging or boasting on him, you know. And you know what? Psalm 34, 2 says, my soul makes, makes its boasts in the Lord. You know, we ought to brag a lot more about God. We've got the best God in the world. Wow. Um, a blessing, all my powers of praise for him. Psalm 103, 1 and 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And it goes on in that psalm to describe a number of his benefits. You know, it'd be good if we'd spend some time studying and listing all the benefits that are ours because of the Lamb, because of who he is and what he's done for us, you know. Um, that could take a long time. I mean, man, you could spend a lifetime doing that. And then to spend some time meditating 
on these benefits, you know. He says, don't forget all his benefits. Well, if we meditate on them, we're less apt to forget them. Uh, so let's never take these benefits for granted, uh, or even worse, think that we're entitled to them. So it is possible to give the lamb the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the strength and the honor and glory in place in the ways that we just described, because he is totally worthy of it all. The last song is the song of high praise from all creation, verses 13 and 14. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So this final chorus widens um, as it's joined by all creation in a swelling burst of glorious, harmonious song. This song ascribes praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever to the one on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son. Notice how the spotlight now shifts to honor both the Father and the Son, and to both of them will be praise and glory and honor forever and ever. And we will have the incredible privilege of being part of that adoration and praise and worship throughout all eternity. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. It can't. And the four living creatures said, this is the response, said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped, you know. Um, you notice I have the word amen in bigger, bigger uh, font size there. It says, this amen um, is not just an ordinary amen from the amen corner. This is a gigantic amen. Yet, like, yes, we totally agree. Um, and then the elders did the only possible thing at that moment. They fell down and worshipped. You know, chapters 4 and 5 are all about the worship and the adoration and praise of God the Father and of the Lamb in heaven. In the eternal kingdom, we're going to be doing a lot of things. We're not going to be worshipping all the time. God's going to have us busy doing all kinds of things, you know. But central to it all, Will be the worship and adoration of the Father and of the Lamb. Um, it'll always come back to that as the backdrop, or maybe should I say the front drop? It's, it's, it's the central point of it. So I want to close with a benediction from Revelation 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.